Welcome to the Cult of Cinema podcast. My name is Caitlin and I'm joined by my lovely co-host Phil. In today's episode, The Bitten and The Smitten. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. So what have we been watching in anticipation for today's episode, Phil? Well, in today's episode, we'll be talking about vampires. So we watched a couple of vampire films. First of all, Vampiris Lesbos, also known as Las Vampiras. Vampiris Lesbos is a West German-Spanish film shot mostly in Istanbul. It's in German, so subtitled. Uh, directed and co-written by Jess Franco, who was described by the Spanish Catholic Church as the most dangerous filmmaker in the world, or among the most dangerous filmmakers in the world. That's a nickname that anyone would love to have. Yeah, I think it was actually the name of at least one of these biographies. Nice. Right. So the film stars Soledad Miranda, who died not long after this, sadly, at the ripe old age of 27. 27 club, that's sad. Yeah. So it stars her as a vampire countess, and Eva Stromberg, who's Swedish, as her victim and lover. <laughs> lover. A lover, lover. She's a Linda the lover. <laughs> as her lover. So the plot's actually pretty complicated, but to boil it down, the Countess has a sexy nightclub, which she uses to lure victims, who are then seduced and devoured on stage. And she fixates on Eva and wants to induct her into the community of vampires. So the plot's pretty secondary to the psychedelic score and the art house visuals. Yes, I would ag- agree with that. <laughs> to the point where I had to like re-familiarize myself with what actually happens. Yeah, it's more of a um a trip that you take with Jess Franco than really a, a story that's being told. Yeah, so it's uh, probably style over substance in that regard. And there's lots of dynamic camera work, which is was divisive in this household. <sighs> Have we talked about my hate of hatred of zooms yet in this podcast? Yeah, so Katie wasn't really aware, but she's. She has this irrational hatred Apparently of zooming. Apparently I have a zooming. violent hatred of zooms. <laughs> She's like, mm, I don't know about that film. Like, it's because it was a zoom, right? And every time there's a zoom, apparently I say, that's a zoom. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that big old 70s zoom fashion. She hates it. I didn't meet, I didn't know I hated it until you pointed it out. But now that you've pointed it out, I can't unsee my own hatred. Yeah. So it's it's pretty interesting, it, and it uses a lot of like out of focus shots to indicate confusion or or sort of dreamlike state. Well, until you pointed that out, I myself was assuming that uh, the first AC was not doing their job properly. <laughs> yeah, it does eventually become clear that they're doing it as a kind of pseudo soft focus. I was so sick of looking at people's sleeves, though, compared to the main actress' <laughs> faces. Oh my gosh, but. Having said that, the visuals are stunning and the production design and costume design is glorious and luxurious and everything you want it to be. Yeah, and it really tells the story through colour, I think. There was a lot of red, Red. black and white, the whole sex and life and death and blood. 
Yeah, I loved the motif of her red scarf that was blood dripping down her or dripping from her, yeah. the, the lead vampire. Yeah, it's yeah exquisite looking. You might have some questions about the plot, which is pretty much a mix between the original Dracula story and the Carmilla vampire, lesbian vampire story from not long after Dracula was written. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's more of a lesbian vampire film than a vampire lesbian film. I think you'll agree. I agree. I mean, they can go out in the middle of the day in this one and there are no fangs. Yeah, no fangs. There's a bunch of biting, but for the most part, not a lot of blood. I mean, no, that's not true. It's secondary to the erotic. There is blood, but it's not as much as you come to expect from a vampire movie, I would say. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, the erotic trumps the horrific but it was, I, I don't know, I really enjoyed it. I was, I had pretty low expectations. I thought it was just going to be a TNA fest. I mean, which it was. <laughs> but it was, I don't know, it just had some sort of quality that I enjoyed. They were, I liked the metaphor of um, the vampire being the scorpion. Like they had a lot of shots of scorpions, but yeah. um, I was a little bit sad when they um, drowned one in a pool. It's just Spoiler an acting alert. scorpion. <laughs> just being trained to do flips underwater. Definitely, Has it definitely, definitely wasn't it just killed. It looked really upset in that pool. Yeah, it wasn't happy. I'm sorry, Scorpion. You died for art. Yeah. So that was definitely on the sex side of the death and sex dynamic that's going on in Vampires. We also watched another film. Thirty Days of Night, which was the 2007 David Slade film after his uh, debut feature, 2005's Hard Candy, which I personally enjoyed very much. Um, this was a different tact. That one was very realistic in a lot of ways, and this one was definitely um, comic book fare, as it was um, originally inspired by a comic book. I did not know that. Yeah. Actually, that makes a lot more sense now. It has a comic book feel, don't you agree? Yeah. So, um, the brief synopsis for 30 Days of Night, uh, a small Alaskan town of Barrow is beset by vampires for its 30-day-long polar night. Really cool concept. It is a very cool concept. Um, I think it was very clever to have vampires operating in a place where they're not restricted by day-night dynamics. Correct. It really portrays them as being smart enough to plan. Yeah, but also plays with their animalistic intent more than a lot of vampire films um, usually do. They usually play into vampires along living humans who can philosophize about life and things like that. But this one really played into, as we like to call them, land shark vampire mythos. Yeah, there was not much that was sexy about them. No, it was a feeding, feeding frenzy of sharp teeth and that was about it. Yeah, they're like human piranhas or sharks for sure. Um, they do shriek a lot. If you're not into shrieking vampires, I would um, not watch this film. Um, <laughs> fun fact, this film was uh, filmed in uh, New Zealand hmm. and the uh, language that the vampires speak uh, was developed with a New Zealand linguistics professor. And we were watching it with uh, Naomi, who is a speech pathologist, and she said that it had a lot of um, hard consonant sounds, I think, clicking consonants. Yeah, and it didn't have enough plosives. Plosives. So, like, 
noises, like mouth noises. And I, I kind of pointed out, well, you know, their teeth are sort of jutting out of their lips, so it probably wouldn't be a lot of fun to try and make mouth noises like that. And she's like, yes. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but yeah, uh, the, it stars uh, Josh Hartnett, who we all forgot about from the 2000s, and uh, Melissa George, an Australian actor, who um, also seems to have been stuck in a 2000s time warp. Um, she was in Dark City, right? Yes. That's another And Triangle. Haven't seen Triangle. No. We haven't seen Triangle yet, but apparently it's good. Mm. Um, and also the um, foreboding Danny Houston as the lead vampire. He was great. As you said, he brought a pathos to that role that otherwise would have been lacking in this film. Yeah. he. I'll, I'll, I mean, the other guys were pretty much just animalistic killers and he had a gravitas. I mean, I'm not sure... All his lines were great, but he carried them well. He almost felt like he was from a different film. Yeah. Yeah, he was kind of contrasted because everybody else was just screaming and killing and he was, you know, dropping nihilistic truth bombs everywhere. <laughs> and I, yeah, I I found that a bit... I was conflicted about it was that depiction. Jarring, it was shall we jarring, shall we say. Yeah. Um, a little... Another couple of fun facts. Um, Sam Raimi almost directed it, but ended up producing. Would you have enjoyed a Raimi adaptation? Would have laughed a lot more. It was pretty grim. It was grim. But not grim enough. Like, it it could have gone grimmer for me. Yeah. Like, because it's set in that sort of, it's the polar night. It's pretty grim. It feels like it's a sort of scandal noir film. And then it goes full comic book, which was a bit confusing for me. Yeah. Aesthetically. Um, I... I did ad- agree with uh, some of the IMDb um, inaccuracies list, which okay. I think has been populated mostly by people who live in Barlow because it's all <laughs> constantly like like correcting inaccuracies of like the town's population is actually a lot bigger and like the proximity of the landmarks is actually quite close and all oh. like further. And um, yeah, the polar night season isn't actually 30 nights. It's actually a lot longer and they actually do have some sun sometimes. And oh, yeah. Well, so. fuck that film. Don't watch it. <laughs> I know, the inaccuracies in a vampire movie. How dare they? Jeez. <laughs> I, I want to see the vampire comments, but actually, this is not representing us accurately. I feel offended. I feel like I don't shriek as much, and also UV light doesn't do anything to my face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I did have one major criticism with this film, and it's literally just plot-related. Do spill. Okay, so these guys have planned this whole 30-night thing out. They need to eat. Do they need to eat? I mean, yeah. It's not explicit, though. They, they say they're hungry, but... Well, they're compelled to eat. They're compelled to kill and eat. But pretty much all they do is bite people's necks and then run away and bite someone else. Like, there's no... They don't really ever seem to be drinking or Were consuming. they just saving them for leftovers, though? Well, you never see it. So, like, <laughs> all you see is corpses. If they're frozen, though... Is it like, do they prefer popsicles? <laughs> ice lolly. <laughs> they just want ice lollies for later. Yeah, I see Paul. Yeah, I don't think so. Like, and it just it struck me as incredibly stupid and not fitting the whole plan. Like they would, they were just trying to depopulate the town without really taking advantage of the fact that they had this basically captive cattle. Anyway, but yeah, they had a pantry full of people, and they decided to just like binge on the first night yeah and they just like smashed all the shelves and then like threw the food on the floor and stomped on it and then we're like oh now we only have like three cans of beans left (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Why did we eat all the ice cream first? <laughs> so that wasn't really well explained. And it could have been. Like, maybe they just they just had to kill rather than eat. I don't know. It was but a compulsion like, or they just couldn't help themselves. Something. Who knows? It just, again, it was that whole, like, they're just feeding animals, like, going crazy. And then they had all this, like, punishing humans, destroying them kind of philosophy going on. So, I don't know. It was a bit conflicted internally, I think. I agree. Yeah. Um, and I find it hilarious that David Slade, off the back of this, um, directed the third Twilight movie, Eclipse. Do you think that there are similarities? I mean, in terms of the way he was able to handle action, sure. Lots of jumping. Yes, lots of jumping. So Good action scenes. I would say that. I, I, yeah. he, he's competent at act, action. For sure. I mean, having recently watched Twilight Eclipse. You're welcome. Yep. That was a thing. Um, yeah, like, definitely lots of jumping and, I don't know, knowing how to shoot pale people. I don't know. Like, there's not a lot that is consistent between those two films. <laughs> Vampires. Actually, they're really good to, to contrast in the whole, you know, to encapsulate what it is about vampires. On one hand, you've got the ravenous land shark that views all humans as prey. And on the other hand, you've got this sort of wily, seductive immortal that may eat you, but probably just wants to impregnate you. <laughs> That's just the columns, though. If we're going into <laughs> Twilight lore, then we have to say that most vampires do eat people. It's just right. They, sure. they are the vegetarians of the vampire world. But they're always alluring. Like that. That's part of their toolkit, right? True. Land sharks, however, not appealing. No, exactly. And so, like, to compare those two, on on the one hand, you've got Twilight, which is kind of like the Mormon version of Vampiris Lesbos. <laughs> I mean, we haven't even got to Breaking Dawn yet, but you'll see. <laughs> I can't wait. Can't wait. Yep. Uh, For, just to inform you guys, uh, Katie has been watching uh, each of the Twilight films one per week. Every Sunday with, with my high school high school buddies because we've all just re we've just read uh, Midnight Sun, the newest Twilight book, and so to bond in these pandemic times, we've decided to rewatch. Uh, the, the Twilight films. And basically spend the whole time like shit canning them in, in Messenger. <laughs> what else are you going to do? <laughs> totally. But yeah, I just, I thought it was really interesting having watched these films back to back. It made me think a lot more about what vampires have represented through time and like the timeline specifically and how each period that a new type of vampire comes out really reflects a lot about that culture. So, like, you start with Max Schreck in Nosferatu, and he's kind of representative of just pure death and pestilence. So, like, Spanish flu, right? Because he, he looks like a rat. Plague. Plague, exactly. Mm. He's, he's pestilence. Yep. There's nothing sexy about Nosferatu. No, there really isn't. It's more of a pervert in the night kind of thing. Yeah, he's, he's a human rat. He's just going to eat on you and spread disease. Perfect. And like, and you know, World War One as well. He's just death. He represents this presence of death in, in German culture at the time, right? And then the original Dracula story gets turned into the stage play, which becomes Bela Lugosi in the Universal horror films. That's when things get a little bit sexy. 
Yeah, like he gets some respectability, and that's where we get the Hungarian accent and the little thing accent, yes, nice. the, the intonation that you know we associate with vampires. And the glamour eyes, they get the yeah. the eyes that glamour and make you stand stand still and maybe a little bit of arousal. Who knows? Exactly, and like I mean, because he's biting only women, yep. basically, and in their beds. Yep. Like you can't underestimate. You can't underestimate how like sensuous that would have been at the time oh yeah even ankles though, <laughs> <laughs> even though they never actually show him like actually biting like there's never any fangs we, and necks we know or whatever. what's going on and then so that sort of sows that seed that like little bit of excitement a little bit of bedroom excitement oh it's a it's a suave a swarthy foreign gentleman in my bedroom biting me Ooh. seducing me with his eyes and that gets like really fully realized with Christopher Lee and Hammer films where they were like explicitly told by the censors to like reduce the sex content. And the violence. Yeah. But, but not as much. Well, because like they were really violent in Curse of Frankenstein. And so the censors were like, oh no, you know, keep that violence down. And they're like, we will, wink. And then just had all like the sexy neck biting stuff where Christopher Lee basically seduces um, Harker's sister. Sister? Yeah. Harker's wife's sister. Mm. Or someone like that. Anyway. And yeah, like they deleted scenes for that. And but well, really interesting thing I have learned about that, actually, bit of a segue, is that before that point, there's no like academic scholarship about vampires and sex. After Christopher Lee, everybody makes that connection. It's the floodgates are open, people. Exactly. And that's like from there obviously you get all those hammer like vampire lesbian films, which obviously this is inspired by. Correct. Yeah. Vampires Lesbos, which we watched. And Have like it. then the through line goes all the way through things like True Blood or, or you know, th- via, you know, Interview with the Vampire and Qu- Queen of the Damned and... 2000s yeah, Underworld and... Exactly. All these like the sexy vampires, the love vampires. The like matrixy sexy vampires. Yeah. Yeah. Oop, there goes that buzzsaw. Wonderful. What are they circular soaring? Anyway. So, yeah. And, like, I think the Twilight films come out of that tradition. Yeah, they would come out of that. But then they're coming from, I don't know, they're mixing, like, the gothic romance with um, more of, like, yeah, coming through a Mormon lens of wait for marriage. But, like, there's still, there's, like, that that teen girl romance that you want where it's all about in the mind rather than seeing too much. And even the villainous vampires in the Twilight film f- films all have a partner. Yes. A life partner. They do have a life partner. An eternity partner. life partner. That's right. And that's what we than, all want. <laughs> and then you compare that to like, I haven't actually seen it, but from what I've gleaned about True Blood and it's just like free for all sexy escapades. Yeah, interests. lots of queer identifying characters which twilight has zero of basically exactly so like they strained away all the subversive sexual content for twilight and then funneled it into true blood yeah pretty much (laughs) but like and then and they but they kept the sexy vampires yeah it's just that they're fully clothed monogamous sexy vampires (laughs) boring (laughs) no it's just a different kind of kink all right it's just us (laughs) But shiny? <laughs> Sparkly. But then on the other hand, you've got like violent vampires. Yeah. True Blood's pretty violent. 
exactly like and it, that one sort of captures both right but like not twilight no. uh, let's not talk about too much of twilight cause <laughs> it wasn't it's not great but it, it is interesting that it's sort of part of this whole like ongoing vampire myth storytelling thing where do you think the 80s vampires movies uh fit into this like lost boys and fright night uh i mean fright night the vampire in that the main guy he has he's he's pretty three-dimensional like he's obviously a sexy violent vampire but he also has that pathos component of like oh woe is me i have to live forever and i'm looking for my lost love yeah and like that comes out of bella lugosi like some of the strongest lines lugosi has in the original uh universal dracula are about how it'd be so nice to actually be dead or sleep Mm. like in fact like all the monsters have that kind of pathos quality pretty much yeah not the invisible man (laughs) but then like lost boys is like party all day sleep no party all night sleep all day grow up never yeah it's it was literally the lost boys like the peter pan story retell through vampires how do you feel about um it's a bit off topic but how do you feel about vampire face changes like are you about it are you not about it like buffy they all always change their face the sort of demonic looking vampire yeah like when they're hunting and feeding they suddenly become the monster and then they can swap to more of a human passing so like a really obvious visual uh representation of their duality yeah compared to say um something like salem's lot where um barlow is just the monster. just the monster and he has to like employ somebody to have the civilian the civil outward face yeah and do you think that that's a reason why kind of the renfields or like the vampire mm. assistants became like unnecessary once vampires mm. became more human facing and they tra- transformed between those two that t- those two dynamics yeah it's really interesting um and i think probably the first one to really capture that was actually christopher lee so when you first meet him, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, he's very... I mean, it's Christopher Lee. He's proper as fuck. He's charming AF. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. I must apologize for not being here to greet you personally, but I trust that you have found everything you needed. Within the first, like, ten minutes of meeting him, he goes from super civil and proper to demonic looking like his eyes are red and he's got massive fangs and covered in gore i think it's the first time where you you capture that ability to, to swap like it's not as drastic as buffy where it's cgi faces or cgi transformation into prosthetic faces i guess but it's still pretty harsh contrast um i don't like it when it goes too far i think i like i find it more compelling when the monster is us so you like it without the two the two of the dynamics you prefer a more humanistic vampire who can live out their deepest fears inside themselves rather than just having the monster straight up Hmm, it's interesting. I don't know. If I think about the transformation in, say, like Bram Stoker, he's got like a variety of degrees of this. Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola one. That's true. He's got like old man vampire. That was probably the best. 
And then he goes into that full monster mode, and I didn't love that, the kind of bat monster thing. Yeah, when did, uh, what do you think about um, vampires changing into animals? I'm about it. Yeah? I mean, uh, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't know. Like, it I depends like if it serves the story or not. Personally, I think that um, I prefer, if they're going to change, like, a bat is probably the only one I would appreciate. I think that um, in terms of changing into, like, a dog or a cat or something like that, that's more the realm of, like, werewolves, and we already have that as a subgenre. I don't think that needs to be mm-hmm. explained more. I think I'd rather keep them separate. Yeah, fair enough. There's Because there's different themes that you can explore with each of these monsters, and I think that like uh, crossing over is, yeah, just unnecessary. There is a lot in common between them, though. I mean, the vampire is immortal, which werewolves aren't, but it captures that animal aspect of humans. Like, we are alpha predators. Like, we're top of the food chain, right? And like that, I think that scares us in our day-to-day lives when our food comes prepackaged, and like everything's nice and clean. We we don't, or we do, and don't like being confronted with the fact that we're actually carnivores, like we're killers. I think personally, it's more about the fact that when you change into a vampire or a werewolf, you are giving up the control and you're you're letting the animal out from inside you and it's that lack of control that a lot of people find really scary about werewolves yeah and even vampires as well when they they're they're driven by their thirst it's not it's not something that they can control whereas when they turn into animals that's more than having the cold capacity to switch it on and off yeah calculating yeah which isn't as scary it's more just part of their representing their power over their nature which is yeah maybe it does kind of conflict with the the inability to control their bloodlust yeah i think that's that's, that's the reason that yeah i find them they need to be separated in my mind at least Mm. i guess my favorite vampires don't change shape a lot no no you're a near dark fan you love a bit of (laughs) oh how good is near dark yeah and like (laughs) that's one of the best depictions of vampires of the last 40 years, I guess. I agree. And there's a love story in there and it doesn't feel like shoehorned in. It's just part of the mythos. Yeah. I think that because they add that Western component where it feels like a, you know, a family traveling in a covered wagon kind of, and they're desperate and they don't fit anywhere. They're, they're desperados. It's a really strong... They're outlaws. Yeah, they're outlaws. It's a really nice contrast to the Lost Boys where they're like... MTV generation. Partiers. Yeah. Yeah. To go back to your comment about the Lost Boys, there's actually something really compelling and tragic about child vampires. So it comes up a few times Fright Night, although it's not as bad there because he's pretty, you know, teenage aged. Salem's Lot, the miniseries slash movie by Toby Hooper, mm-hmm. where the child vampires are floating outside the window. Like, that's, that's a really powerful scene. And I think the most, the singular most important child vampire depiction is actually in Interview with a Vampire. It's in Near Dark as well. Similar idea, but I think it's more fully realized the sadness of being an eternal child and how it means you can't advance through all these stages that you naturally want to. Um, also, let the right one in. Yeah. Where it's 
That one's even more complicated though, because it's kind of implied that it was a boy who had been, uh, I don't know, mutilated, bitten. Uh, maybe he always identified as a girl. Maybe he didn't, but he now lives as a girl because he's lacking male genitals and complicated, I guess. But yeah, but that kind of um, fear of having to live as a child your whole life and identify as one to um, out outside parties. Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's really interesting because it's it combines the whole death component, but it restricts the sex component. Yeah, and so you're not you're not really allowed to engage in that, or you, you can't, or it's taboo. Yeah, or like maybe you just can't. Cause it's too young. Yeah, right. So Hormones haven't got to a certain stage. Yeah, your body hasn't developed enough, or whatever, and so it's. It's um like the fully realized vampire is the it's the sex death avatar, right? Exactly. But the child sort of gets half that bargain. They just have to eat and kill, which is the terrible part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they can never fully do that properly either because they're so small and yeah, you know, it's they get their normal life taken and then their substitute life is kind of shit. Yeah, it's a it's probably the worst kind of vampire you're gonna want to be. Whereas, like, in The Lost Boys, I guess, that at least they get to be teenage. Like, they get to live in their quote-unquote prime late teenage years mm. forever. Which is kind of, like, strangely the motivation for, is it Bella yeah. in Twilight? Like, she's like, oh, no, I'm getting old. I need to... I don't want you to look like my son and then my grandson. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be young forever. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Do huh? you think that's one of the enduring appeals, the forever young yeah, vanity, of course. It's, yeah, you know, it's one of the seven deadly sins. Do you think if it was an old person being turned into a vampire, people would think that was tragic because you're stuck? Yeah, you'd be stuck wanting death. But a lot of vampires are anyway. It doesn't matter what age they are. They've, no, they've lived even, enough. Not even wanting death, just like you're not in your prime, but that's what you get forever. Well, I mean, and what part of your body either changes or is um, frozen in time? I know there's a tragic part that's probably TMI, but, you know, we're talking about sex and, and violence and blood. But um, in uh, True Blood, there's a vampire who gets um, changed bef and she's a virgin, but her hymen's still intact. So every time she has sex, it re reappears and emerges. <laughs> so she has to, <laughs> she has to <laughs> break it every time she has sex. The eternal virgin. Yeah, the eternal virgin. God, that's dumb. Because it, it freezes <laughs> you at that exact time. Right, yeah, that's interesting, isn't and it? And, like, what other ramifications could there be to that kind of logic if you're an old person? <laughs> yeah, eternally, like, I don't know, incontinent? Yeah, internally. <laughs> or, like, y your bones just hurt all the time. You're arthritic forever. Yeah, it's interesting. Or imagine if a vampire with Alzheimer's. Like, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a horrific thought. Like, the... <laughs> Maybe they'll forget they're a vampire. <laughs> I don't think they'd last very long. No. No. Well, I'm sure we could talk forever on this topic and we maybe revisit it some other time when we've got some more films under our belt and some more, uh, I don't know, critical engagement with the topic under our belt as well. But for now, that concludes today's sermon. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating or review. We really value your feedback as we improve the podcast. If you've got an idea of what you'd like to hear, reach out and let us know. Our email address and Twitter handle are in the show notes.
If you'd like to hang out with a cool online community of film fans, check out the Cult of Cinema podcast discussion group on Facebook. And with that, until next time, all, all hail, hail cinema. cinema.